Chapter 11 of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Eric Charles, Springfield, Virginia, CharlesPsychology.com. A Theory of Monads. Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr Chapter 11 The A Priori Synthesis In true philosophers, there is always something more than themselves beneath their teaching, something of which they are themselves unconscious. It is the germ of a new life. To repeat mechanically what philosophers have taught is to suffocate that germ, to prevent it developing and becoming a new and more perfect system. Prose. Modern philosophy has been determined in its form and matter, as well as in the subdivisions of its sciences, by the work of Kant. The reason of this becomes clear when we study modern philosophy historically and in its development. Two lines of speculation, opposite in their directing principle, even contradictory in the method followed, meet in Kant. Each is recognized as legitimate, their opposition is reconciled, and a new method emerges in which the old antitheses are synthesized and the modern problem of philosophy becomes concrete. Kant named this critical method. It rests on a philosophical discovery, the a priori synthesis. In Kant, philosophy becomes preeminently theory of knowledge. It is theory of knowledge which divides the speculative from the practical reason and which leads within the speculative realm to the distinction of aesthetic and logic, and within the practical realm to that of metaphysics and ethics. The aesthetical, the logical, the metaphysical, and the ethical problems, as they exist in philosophy today, own their definite shape and relative significance to the form in which the philosophical problem was presented by Kant. The two lines of philosophical development before Kant were, First, the philosophy of clear and distinct ideals, which begins with Descartes and attains its full expression in Leibniz. And second, the philosophy of sense experience, the theory of the origin of ideas and the laws of their association, which begins with Francis Bacon and later is systematized first by Hobbes, then by the English philosophers of the 18th century, attaining its full expression in the skeptical philosophy of Hume. In Kant, the two methods are distinguished as dogmatism and empiricism, and it is this contrast he has in mind when he tells us in the Prolegomena that the skepticism of Hume roused him from his dogmatic slumber. It is easy to see the origin of this divergent direction of philosophical development if we reflect on the nature of the problem which knowledge presents to us. When without any prepossession, derived from philosophical theories, we attend to the experience we name cognition, we find that it is not immediate, simple, and self-explanatory. We cannot say that in having the experience of knowledge, we know what knowledge is, in the same way in which we can say that we know what pain, or heat, or cold is, when we experience the sensations. Knowing refers beyond itself, and also presents two aspects— there is an activity, knowing, and there is a passivity, something is known. The dis this distinction, which is all that the experience itself yields, 
seems to imply something beyond itself as its condition. We reason, therefore, and infer from the activity that there exists an agent, and this we call the mind. We reason and infer from knowledge that there exists an object, and this existence we then represent as an independent condition of knowing, and not as itself conditioned by the knowing relation. By this natural reasoning, common sense reaches the notion of nature and mind as two independent existences, and by such reasoning it defends the notion when it is challenged. In philosophy, we name this theory the naive realism of common sense. According to it, there are objects independent of knowing, subjects, and subjects, minds or selves, independent of objects, and knowledge is a relation between them which does not affect or qualify the existence of either. Knowledge means, in fact, that there exists in mind a faculty or power of discerning the existence and discovering the nature of an external world. There are two things, a mind and a world, and an external relation between them. The dualism of mind and world, which common sense thus accepts uncritically as the necessary ground of living action, is the problem of philosophy. If the analysis of experience yields immediately the theoretical ground of our practical belief, there would be no philosophical problem of knowledge and no need for a theory of knowledge. It would be enough to have the experience of cognition in order to know its meaning and nature. It is not so. In order to discover the meaning of cognition, we must reflect upon experience and bring it before the mind as an object for analysis. The moment we do so, we become aware of a logical discrepancy between the object of knowledge as real and the knowledge of the object as ideal. And these discrepancies is the first form in which knowledge becomes a problem of philosophy. Two difficulties confront the philosopher from whatever standpoint he approaches the problem. They concern the two substantive terms which cognition seems to imply, mind and thing. The first is a difficulty which underlies all the groups of problems known as problems of the self. It is in the nature of a paradox. The substantive term of the knowing relation on its own subjective side, the self or ego, is not, and qua knowing cannot be, object of knowledge, and therefore the knowing self is itself unknown. The second difficulty concerns the subjective term on the objective side. The independent object or thing is not the known object. The object known gives us ground for the presumption that the object exists independently, but knowledge gives us known object, not its independent existence. Strictly speaking, therefore, although knowledge is a relation between subject and object, yet subject and object are themselves unknown. These difficulties may be presented in another way. That which in experience we know most immediately, we can never know objectively, and that which we know objectively is never existentially independent and therefore free from subjectivity. What we are ever striving after and can never attain is to know the mind without objectivity and the thing without subjectivity. If we maintain that such knowledge is impossible, the retort is that if there be no knowledge of a real world, in its independence of knowing mind, physical science is impossible. If to avoid this we hold that knowledge is an external relation between independent existences, then the retort is that truth is a miracle, 
or at least an unfathomable mystery, and philosophy is impossible. But may it not be that the common-sense belief that objects known and subjects knowing exist in reality as they exist in idea is true? Is it not possible that in the ideal order of knowledge we have the exact counterpart of the real order of nature, and that this nature is indifferent to whether it is known or not? The answer depends on what is meant. There is a series in which we may say of anything, of which we are necessarily ignorant, that it may be true, and in saying so, we do more than express our ignorance. If, however, we mean by truth positive knowledge, which we will stand the logical test of consistency, then we must answer that the common-sense belief is not true and cannot conceivably be proven true. It is in the very discovery that common sense is logically inconsistent that philosophy takes its start. Still, we may ask, is it not possible that the result of the philosophical quest for a theory will be the conclusion that the common-sense belief is true? Again, we must answer that this is impossible. Philosophy may, and indeed must, as part of its task, show the common ground of the common-sense belief, but to adopt it as a philosophical conclusion would simply condemn philosophy. It would mean that the quest for a theory of knowledge so far from arising in a need of intellectual satisfaction is a false step which the wise man will avoid taking. To return to the uncritical starting point as the reasoned conclusion would only prove that philosophy has made false route. Now to many philosophers, it seems that in pursuing theory of knowledge, philosophy is making false route. Theory of knowledge seems to them a hindrance a stumbling block and rock of offense in the path of philosophical advance. Their first care is to clear it out of the way. It seems easy to do and justified by results. Philosophy is much more than theory of knowledge, but allow it to be blocked by this theory at the outset, and we are condemned, they say, to remain forever outside the promised land. We must recognize the problem, of course. Berkeley and Hume have made it impossible for anyone to ignore it but we need not be turned aside by it. Let us make the hypothesis that the common-sense belief is right and see whether we shall not be justified in, by the result. The attractiveness of most of the modern realist theories of knowledge is not that they solve the problem, but that they seem in this way to successfully shelve it. There are many inducements to such a course. Not the least is the underlying bias in our nature, which manifests itself in the strong inclination to think that a particularly workable belief must be a theoretically true belief. Even in philosophy, we are swayed by the unconscious assumption that common sense is in the last resort the positive criterion of truth. We are even conscious of a strong tendency to discredit any theory, however consistent it be and rational in itself, if it conflict with common sense. And yet there is the history of thought to remind us that self-evident beliefs are continually being discredited. Common sense, indeed, not only sets our problem, but accompanies every effort to solve it, with a substantiated bias against its solution, which weakens intellectual effort and warps judgment. We can indeed enter on philosophy by making the hypothesis that the existence and nature of a world contemplated is immediately and absolutely disclosed to a mind contemplating. 
we can use the hypothesis as a bridge to pass discreetly from knowledge to reality, and thus avoid what some call the morass, others the impassable gulf, of theory of knowledge. But it is a hypothesis, and no description of it as naive realism can disguise its hypothetical nature. This is as much to say that we can choose to begin philosophy with a principle which is false to philosophy. Hypothesis as a starting point of philosophical theory is a false step we cannot retrieve. Hypothesis non fingo should stand as a warning post at the entrance to philosophy. Science makes hypotheses. They are indeed the very instrument of scientific advance. Science is utilitarian, and therefore hypothesis is for it a rational method. It meets the demand for the satisfaction of theoretical truth. Suppose we start with the assumption that our impressions and ideas, which we distinguish as ideal existences from things and relations, are simply the discovery or discernment of real existences. How can any subsequent reasoning make that assumption cease to be an assumption? The hypothesis, for such it is, which we pose at the beginning, is thenceforward an existential part of any logical conclusion at which we can possibly arrive. How can we bring the hypothesis to a test, such as is common enough in science, which will cause it to lose its character of hypothesis and become the theoretically consistent account of knowledge which our intellect demands for its intellectual satisfaction? The hypothesis which we thus introduce into philosophy is not needed in practical life, and in philosophy it is useless, for there is no method of philosophy by which a hypothesis can be submitted to a criterion. There is, however, in the actual experience of cognition, something which itself seems to impel us to pass directly from subjective thinking to an existent reality independent of thought. We are dissatisfied and feel as though we were thwarted or held up and suspended in air, so long as the passage of objective reality is in doubt. Yet the moment we reflect on our experience, we see that knowledge must, in the first instance, be a purely subjective state of the knower, notwithstanding that its whole meaning depends on its claim to be truth about existence. Hence our impatience to be transported to this existence and to be able to feel that it is free from any taint of subjectivity. In the mathematical and physical sciences, we seem to have achieved this pure objectivity, and for philosophy to fall short appears as a handicap. But in truth, it is this apparent handicap which constitutes the strength of philosophy and raises it high above the special sciences in dignity. For philosophy is the science of science. All reality, subjective as well as objective, mind as well as nature, mind inclusive of nature, nature inclusive of mind, is the subject of philosophy. This is why assumptions and hypotheses are abhorrent to the philosopher. He has no criterion outside knowledge by which to test knowledge. How then does philosophy begin? Everyone will agree that it begins with the study of experience, that the study of experience is only possible if the mind has the power to reflect, that however direct the reflection on experience, knowledge of experience is, as compared with the experience reflected on, indirect, and yet the experience of reflecting on experience is one and continuous with the experience reflected on. This means that experience is one with consciousness, or, what is the same thing, that experience is self-conscious by right, 
and in its own essential nature, that self-consciousness is not acquired. This, reduced to its simplest position, is the necessary standpoint of a philosophy which eschews hypothesis. We take experience as it is and analyze it in right of the self-consciousness it possesses. Now, when the experience of cognition is submitted to this analysis, it yields at once an important distinction, the distinction between act and object. The act is the knowing, the object is the known. The act is the apprehension of the object, whatever be the mode of acting or the character or nature of the object. Mode of acting and character of object known are, however, always correlate. If, for example, the act be sensing, the object is sensation. If it be perceiving, the object is percept. If thinking, thought, and so throughout. The object is always presented, passive, or given. The act is always directed in or towards it. It is on the interpretation of this twofold aspect of cognition, or of this dual nature, that the most fundamental divergence in metaphysical theory arises. According to some philosophers, it implies that mind and nature are dual existences, and that knowing is an external relation between them. To them, the common-sense view that things are in their essence and independent existence, what we in the act of knowing discern them to be, is justified. On the other hand, to some philosophers, it implies the direct contrary, for it proves that the whole world is only object in relation to subject, perception of a perceiver, and that its reality is therefore essentially ideality. Without trying at this point to decide between these divergent directions in metaphysical theory, we may at least point out that so far as the first interpretation finds a justification of common sense, it is justification not of common sense, but of the hypothesis which underlies the view of common sense. Philosophy makes no hypothesis, but validates the hypothesis of ordinary working life. The second interpretation, on the other hand, condemns the common-sense hypothesis as illusion, and is in consequence committed to show how the illusion arises and what purpose it serves. Between knowledge and truth there exists no difference. Knowing and knowing truly are one and identical. Knowing falsely is not knowing. This means that truth is not the object of knowledge, but the validity of knowledge. It means also that the opposition of error to truth is not a distinction between knowing and not knowing, but an opposition within the one distinct concept of knowledge or truth. It is clear, then, that if the object of knowledge be something confronting the knowing mind, an outside which in knowing is brought inside, the act of knowing must be essentially an act of faith, and its validity miraculous. It is this problem of validity that has seemed imperative to call for a hypothesis. If the act of knowing is an act of faith, who or what is to assure us of its validity? This is, then, a problem of knowledge which meets us at the very beginning of philosophy, and a peculiarly discouraging problem, because it seems to challenge the very possibility of philosophy. We want to study reality, and our only means is knowledge. Yet this very means seems itself to interpose an obstacle and to prevent our ever reaching the goal. Could we only, we think, place ourselves at the very beginning of life and watch the genesis of knowledge, 
surely then we should understand its nature. Many have tried to surmount the difficulty by some device, natural or artificial, which would place us, at least imaginatively, in the position of surveying knowledge from the independent standpoint of reality, but all such attempts only serve to conceal or disguise the real problem. The reality and inevitableness of the problem of knowledge will be manifest if we consider three definite and typical instances of the attempt to meet it in the history of philosophy. To Descartes, to Berkeley, and to Kant, knowledge presented itself as primarily a problem. It seemed to interpose a veil before the mind's view of reality, or even to bar altogether the pathway to reality. Descartes presented the problem of the validity of knowledge in the clearest and most striking form in which it has ever been stated. He propounded a principle of universal doubt, but so far from it leading him to absolute skepticism, it revealed the ground of certainty. Probably no philosopher has ever worked with surer confidence than Descartes in working out the principles of a philosophy of nature and producing the definite schema of a mechanical system of the universe. But a formidable obstacle confronted him at the outset. It was not exactly what we now call the problem of truth. It was not, that is to say, the question whether truth be correspondence or coherence, and what in either case is its criteria. It was more profound. It was, if I may state it in my own terms, how can we be sure that our experience, or any part of our experience, is knowledge of real existence? The experience of being at rest, of remaining fixed in one spot during a succession of events in time, is consistent with the real existence of translation. The senses are deceptive. This was the reason for the method. How and when is experienced knowledge? Only by doubting everything that can possibly be doubted shall we arrive at certainty. Only if we can point to one absolute certainty shall we know what in experience characterizes knowledge. To say that we cannot know until we first of all know what knowing is sounds self-stultification, and is often so represented. But to refuse to recognize the difficulty is to leave the whole of philosophy on an unsound foundation. We cannot learn to swim without plunging into the water, but only the fool who courts disaster plunges into the water in order that he may learn to swim. Let us see, then, how this problem of knowledge resolved itself for Descartes. Here are the opening sentences of the Principles of Philosophy. We were children before we became men, and just as then, when we were without the full use of reason, our judgment concerning things presented to our senses were sometimes right and sometimes wrong, so now we find many premature judgments preventing us coming to the knowledge of truth and even obstructing us. There seems one way to escape. It is that once, at least in our lives, we should undertake to doubt everything wherein we can discover the least suspicion of uncertainty. And here is the conclusion of the principles, written when the whole mechanism of nature has been explored. I distinguish two kinds of certainty. The first is called moral. It suffices for the regulation of our conduct. The other kind is when we cannot think that the thing can be otherwise than we can judge it to be. This certainty is founded on a very sure metaphysical principle. It is that God 
being sovereignly good and the source of all truth, for he is our creator, has bestowed upon us the power or faculty of distinguishing the true from the false, which cannot be deceptive when rightly used. It shows us evidently that a thing is true. This famous principle, that God, in the case of evident ideas, does not deceive, is in its very nature a hypothesis, and in accepting it, we make our whole knowledge of external real existence depend on an assumption. But there is all the difference in the world between an assumption consciously adopted as a conclusion and an assumption unconsciously latent in an argument. The philosophical importance of this hypothesis in the conclusion is not whether it is probable or improbable, and in what degree, but that it stands for failure, not success. If ever there has been a pure inquirer, conscientious and anxious at all costs to attain the truth and no real existence, it is Descartes. He has no interest in doubt as doubt, no inducement to doubt for the sake of doubting. He doubts in order to know, as the medieval philosophers believed in order to understand. Doubt for Descartes is no idle speculation. It is the search for truth. The method led Descartes to the immediate discovery that there is one truth secure against possible disturbance by doubt, namely, the existence which is given in the act of thinking itself. I think, therefore I am, is a truth which doubting, for doubting is thinking, affirms. If, then, I consider this truth, I may find out what it is which characterizes knowledge, and I discover that it is clearness and distinctness which identify idea and existence. I have not discovered a truth. I have discovered what truth is, clearness and distinctiveness of the idea, which in this typical case is self-evidence. So then we possess at least one truth in which the passage from thought to existence is immediate. It is not the ontological argument, because it is not an argument. But it is that which is to give to the ontological argument a new meaning and a new force. For here in the very fact of thinking, we have an idea which includes existence. In, I think therefore I am, we possess a truth which is absolute so far as the relation of thought to existence is concerned. But it is a truth which has a limit in extension. The existence which is affirmed is confined to the point instance affirmation. It loses its immediacy directly we try to extend it beyond the actual point which marks its present. It affirms what is, not what has been or will be. I may say, for example, I remember, therefore I am, if by remembering I mean my present thinking, but I cannot infer the existence of the object remembered from the fact of my present memory. How then am I to pass from the immediacy of idea and existence in the present moment to the identity of idea and existence at other moments and in other points? It is clear that if I am to pass immediately, that is, without inference, hypothesis, or assumption, any of which would introduce doubt, from the particular truth of my own existence to the truth of existence in general, it must be because I am able to find in the idea of this existence the existence itself. That is to say, 
the idea must contain existence in precisely the same meaning as that in which the I am of existence is contained in the I think. Descartes finds this in the idea of God, which contains the clear and distinct truth, God exists. This doctrine is very important and calls for careful scrutiny. It is the familiar ontological argument, and Descartes propounds it in the identical terms of the old theology, but in its new setting it has an entirely new significance. God exists is a truth which is self-evident and immediately certain in the clearness and distinctness of its idea. The God idea includes existence in precisely the same immediate sense in which the I think contains the I am. God is a necessary idea if existence be not momentary, for the I think therefore I am contains nothing in the idea which will continue or sustain existence from moment to moment. The necessary existence of God is not, therefore, a dogma which Descartes wants to affirm in the interest of religion or morality. It is a necessary stage of the search for truth. The idea of the self and of God are clear and distinct ideas whose truth is guaranteed in the fact that existence is not separate from them, but contained within the ideas. It is the exact opposite with my knowledge of nature. If I know material substance, then by the notion of it I know an existence which the idea does not contain. It is the very essence of matter, according to Descartes, that it confronts the idea, stands over against it by reason of an attitude extension, which the idea does not possess. What is truth when existence is separate from the idea? How can I know an existence which my ideas do not contain? In this case, doubt is not excluded. Not only so, but I am continually discovering that my ideas are false, and I am constantly suspicious that they are inadequate, even if not false. Have I any criterion of truth? The method has shown me that the ideas which exclude doubt, the self and God, are clear and distinct. It is impossible to have them as ideas and to doubt their existence in fact. They are self-evident. My ideas concerning external existence, however, differ in the degree of their clearness and distinctness. Some, particularly those of sense, are obscure and confused. Some, particularly those of intellect, are clear and distinct, and with the degree of their clearness and distinctness goes the difficulty of doubting their reality. Hence we may conclude that clear and distinct ideas are true, but we have not excluded doubt. Is it possible to do so? Only by founding an argument on our idea of God. The idea of the most perfect being must include veracity. We cannot think that God deceives. but we object, we are deceived, for are not the senses deceptive? The purpose of the sense is not, Descartes replies, to give us true ideas, it is to preserve our body from injury, but the purpose of our intellect is to give us truth. To suppose, then, that in the case of clear and distinct ideas, God our creator is our deceiver, is to suppose God false to the very principles of clearness and distinctness which he has himself determined to be the criterion of truth. This is not Descartes' philosophy, but it is the problem of knowledge which lay in the path of his philosophy.
Let us now consider the second instance we have chosen, Berkeley. One of the most interesting human documents which has been preserved to us is the Commonplace Book of Occasional Metaphysical Thoughts, which George Berkeley kept during his student years at Trinity College, Dublin. Before he was 20 years old, he had formed the design of a treaty, which was to be a complete system of philosophy. In the Commonplace Book, he jotted down, as they occurred to him and without form, the thoughts which were to be developed into the great work. The treaty was never written. The work, entitled A Treaty Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge, was probably in its original form intended as part of it, and was perhaps thrown into its present shape when the Essays Towards a New Theory of Vision had met with success. In the commonplace book, he had various notes intended for the great design. Thus we read, Mem. To premise a definition of idea, against this is place a capital I, indicating that the memorandum is for his introduction. Then there follows this note. The two great principles of morality, the being of God and the freedom of man, these to be handled in the second book. The first and third books of the treaty are also alluded to. Why was this work not only never completed, but first laid aside and then abandoned? The important philosophical works which contain the theory we associate with Berkeley are short, unsystematic, and occasional, and all written at the beginning of his literary life. Why he turned aside from his purpose and then abandoned it, we do not know. Probably his life with its widening practical and philanthropical schemes is the sufficient answer. But the works he has left and the notes in his commonplace book show us very plainly the direction of his thought. They enable us to see what books he was reading and the effect they had on him and the kind of problems that fascinated him. This commonplace book begins about 1704, when Berkeley was in his 20th year. He is then a graduate, having matriculated when he was 15. The Essays Towards a New Theory of Vision was printed in 1709, it was followed by the Treaty Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge in 1710 and the Three Dialogues between Hylas and Philonus in 1713. We are able from the commonplace book to see the contemporary philosophy which he studied and the order in which he read it. He read Newton and Locke and Malbranche in the order named. He had evidently no acquaintance with Descartes' Principia, and this seems strange, seeing how critical and hostile he is towards Newton. Newton begs his principles, I demonstrate mine. He read Descartes' meditations and the observations on them, but probably not until after he had become acquainted with the Cartesian theory of Malbranche. His only reference to Hobbes is in connection with Descartes' meditations, and Leibniz is only referred to in relation to Newton's theory of fluxions. Spinoza he mentions more than once, but evidently the common prejudice has prevented him from direct acquaintance with his work. Locke he is reading with diligent care and sustained admiration. In criticizing him, he describes himself as a pygmy in comparison with a giant. But the determining factor in the direction of his philosophical research 
is clearly Malebranche, that is, Cartesianism as expounded by Malebranche. The research de la verte has a striking effect on him, drawing him off his original purpose. I am not referring to any resemblance, parent or real, between Malebranche's theory of vision in God and Berkeley's theory that God sustains the world in perceiving it, nor am I suggesting that Berkeley's theory is derived from Malebranche and not original. The two theories are essentially different, and probably without any direct relation to one another. The influence I am speaking of as determining the direction of Berkeley's speculation is that of the Cartesian theory of the deceptiveness of the senses, brought out with striking force in Book One of the Research. It was a direct challenge to the principle which Berkeley had accepted from Locke, and led him to reaffirm Locke's principles against the Cartesians. At the same time, it called forth a criticism of Locke and a profounder study of the principle itself. The immediate effect was the essay towards a new theory of vision. This biographical note is particularly important just because Berkeley's original research in philosophy belongs, as we have seen, to his early years. His knowledge of contemporary philosophy must have been derived from his own reading in the leisure of his regular courses of classical and mathematical studies. His service to philosophy is not that he developed by critical study the work of his predecessor Locke, but that he took up the challenge presented by the Cartesian method of doubt. In fact, Berkeley, like Descartes, has the ideal of a philosophy wherein, as in the promised land, we may dwell surely in the sure possession of truth, and finds that there is a formidable obstacle at the outset, a doubt concerning knowledge itself, concerning its reality, concerning its validity. No advance is possible unless this obstacle is removed. The Cartesian principle, so far from overcoming it, has made it, if possible, more impassable than it was, for it separates existence from knowledge, and so makes it impossible to unite them. Here are some of the notes in the commonplace book, which disclose Berkeley's leading thought. Mem. Diligently to set forth how that many of the ancient philosophers run into so many great absurdities, as even to deny the existence of motion and those other things they perceived actually by their senses. This sprung from their not knowing what existence was and wherein it consisted. This was the source of all their folly. Tis on the discovery of the nature and meaning and import of existence that I chiefly insist. This puts a wide difference betwixt the skeptics, etc., and me. This, I think, wholly new. I am sure this is new to me. I am the farthest from skepticism of any man. I know with an intuitive knowledge the existence of other things, as well as my own soul. This is what Locke, nor scarce any other thinking philosopher, will pretend to. The supposition that things are distinct from ideas takes away all real truth, and consequently brings in a universal skepticism, since all our knowledge and contemplation is confined barely to our own ideas. These notes enable us to see clearly what Berkeley's problem is. Skepticism in philosophy is unavoidable if knowledge of existence is unattainable. Knowledge of existence is unattainable 
if existence and idea are separate things. But in sense perception, there is no separation of idea and existence. The senses do not deceive us. They cannot deceive us, for the objects of knowledge in sense experience are perceptions and not an existence separate from perception. The ordinary man may think that his perceptions exist when he is not perceiving, but only philosophers suppose that there is an existence of a sensible object independent of its perception. This is a pure invention of philosophers and an absurdity. Essay is percipi, is therefore the direct contradictory of the Cartesian theory that the senses are deceptive, that truth is adherent to ideas, that its criterion is subjective, and that knowledge depends on the truth of a hypothesis. Berkeley's doctrine that essay is percipi was indeed mainly used by him to give force to his criticism of Locke's idea of material substance, but primarily it was the challenge to the Cartesian principle and the affirmation of the antithetical principle, a curious thing, however, about Berkeley's theory of knowledge, is that although it adopts as its principle the direct contradictory of the Cartesian principle, it leads to precisely the same dilemma. What is still more curious is that in attempting to meet this dilemma, it adopts what is practically the identical device. Berkeley fell back for his support of an existence which would give continuity to the intermittent and fragmentary perceptions of individuals on the idea of God as a continuous perceiver. We see, therefore, that both positions present a problem which cannot be solved without transcending the individual experience. If there be an existence independent of idea, then the problem is, how can idea, whatever its clearness and distinctness, impart knowledge of existence? If there be, on the other hand, no existence which is not also idea, then the problem is, what is it that exists in the intervals of individual perception? In each case, there is a problem of knowledge, which theory of knowledge cannot dispel, and in each case it effectively blocks the entrance to the promised land. Let us now consider Kant. His philosophy is theory of knowledge from beginning to end. His work is not an inspiration or youthful enthusiasm. It is the mature reflection of the professional philosopher. Kant was in his 58th year when he published The Critique of Pure Reason. His whole life up to that time had been engaged in teaching, and for the previous 11 years he had held the professorial chair of philosophy at Kronzberg. The two critiques which followed The Critique of Pure Reason are a development and integral part of the whole conception. To Kant, therefore, the theory of knowledge does not present itself as an obstacle in the path to systematic knowledge. It is not a bridge, constructed ad hoc, to enable the mind to cross the gulf which separates the idea from the existence. On the contrary, it is the whole special problem of philosophy. It is not even its first and main business. It is its whole business. Philosophy in Kant has ceased completely to be encyclopedic, as it was to Aristotle and later to Francis Bacon. It stands in necessary and peculiar relation to the mathematical and natural sciences, 
but it is distinguished from them by its special task and the method which the task imposes. Kant has revealed to us how this came about. In the Prolegmena, published two years after the Great Critique, and intended to elucidate it, he tells us that the skepticism of Hume first roused him from his dogmatic slumber. It forced upon him the question, is metaphysics possible? Is the knowledge of reality within our attainment? This could only be answered by investigating the conditions of the possibility of knowledge. This research became of necessity the whole philosophy of Kant. It is forced upon him because each of the opposite and mutually contradictory principles which philosophers have followed has failed. The alternative methods, the one he calls dogmatism, the other empiricism, are alike unworkable. One is a vicious circle from which there is no outlet, the other is a skepticism from which there is no advance, yet neither can be dismissed. Each principle indicates something fundamental and indispensable in knowledge. Let us try and rethink the reflection which led Kant to his great philosophical discovery. First, then, those are right who hold that knowledge depends on clear and distinct ideas, and that truth is clearness and distinctness of ideas. It is undeniable that the belief which I accord, and cannot withhold from, the propositions of mathematics rest on self-evidence, and on the immediate apprehension of the import of the ideas themselves. But, then, on the other hand, knowledge depends on sense experience. The perceptions of sense are without and independent of me, in the meaning that they are not drawn out of my nature, and they are not at my command nor under my control. Their order and their import are independent of me. The senses often deceive me, but this only means not that the sense experience is itself deceitful, but that the ideas which I bring to its interpretation are at fault. Clearly, then, knowledge requires and supposes both sense perception and thought, both percepts and ideas. The senses provide the matter, the ideas the form of knowledge. How do they come together, and on what principle are they combined? Sense experience is original. Does it carry with it the relations which make it knowledge of the world? Clearly not. Sense experience is in its very nature a manifold, a manifold without connection, or any principle of unity in itself. It is impossible, by analyzing a pure datum of sense, to discover in it a necessary connection with another datum. But ideas are in their very nature relations. Whence are they derived? They are not derived from sense perceptions, for these do not contain them. They must belong to the constitution of the mind. They must come from within and not from without. And this also agrees with experience. But then, if my mind possesses ideas or rational forms, are not these sufficient? Will they not of themselves give me knowledge, restricted it may be, but yet absolute, knowledge which may grow as it advances? No, for there is a constituent of knowledge which ideas cannot give. Thinking will not produce sensation. Knowledge, then, is a synthesis. Its condition is that two separate, completely heterogeneous factors exist in unity. 
neither of these factors can of itself bring about the synthesis. The synthesis is original and a priori. It is not brought about by experience, but is the condition of experience. This was Kronz's great philosophical discovery. The a priori synthesis does not enable Kant to give a satisfactory answer to his question, is metaphysics possible? Instead of that, it leads him to present the problem of philosophy in a new way, but it is still a problem. The ideas are concepts, forms of sense intuition and categories of the understanding. All that the mind brings to constitute knowledge are empty and void in abstraction from sense intuition. And since intuition is without connection, interpretation, meaning, or significance in its pure existence. Thoughts without content are void. Intuitions without concepts are blind. Nonwithstanding his discovery that knowledge depends on a synthesis before experience, it yet seems to him that the factors of the synthesis point to independent realms of reality outside the relation. Knowledge is of phenomena, but the factors which constitute phenomena are noumena. Noumena are things in themselves, and of things in themselves we have no knowledge. So at the one end, behind the sense intuitions, there are real causes which lie beyond the reach of the mind, and at the other end, behind the activities which find expression in forms and categories, there are realities which we do not know as objects but only as regulative ideas. Knowledge is valid. We are in possession of truth. But knowledge is limited. It is confined to phenomena, and phenomena do not exhaust reality. Noumena, by the very condition of knowledge, are unknowable. So, then, if metaphysics be the science of reality, metaphysics is impossible by reason of a natural disability. Kant's philosophy, then, presents the aspect of failure. Nevertheless, it registers a distinct and notable advance. The a priori synthesis is a new concept. I have tried to show its historical origin in the two antithetical principles which were adopted by rival methods and reconciled in the critical method. Let us now look at its philosophical origin. The concept of an a priori synthesis is in what is essential to it, the concept of the monad. I do not mean that it is the historical evolution of the monadic concept of substance. I mean that it affirms a theory of knowledge which derives its whole force and depends for the conviction it brings on that concept. A synthesis, experience of factors, which in experience are presented as opposite in their nature, is only a rational idea if it is intended to affirm an original unity of nature, that is, a unity pertaining to the reality of the factors related to the synthesis. Try to imagine the factors as originally diverse, real but empty forms, real but blind sense contact, and imagine that these are somehow advantageously associated as a condition of experience and the whole concept becomes fantastic and incredible in the highest degree. The factors are not objects, but the objective factor is opposed to the subjective. Subject and object are synthesized in knowledge, 
It is this which destroys the value of any analogy we might be tempted to draw from nature, as, for example, chemical synthesis, where we bring together pre-existing substances with definite sense qualities and obtain a new substance with new and different sense qualities. And more than this, we see that it is just insofar as Kant's synthesis is at variance with the concept of the monad, that is, in the affirmation of a reality, the thing in itself, which falls outside the synthesis, that there is a failure. The monad has limitations, but its limitations are not external. They are intrinsic to it. The monad is a complete whole. No reality lies outside its perception. What distinguishes the monads is not their subjectivity. A subject of experience may present to itself a monad as the object of its experience, but the reality of the monad so presented is not its objectivity to another subject, but its own essential subjectivity. There is no reality outside the monad if the objects of knowledge, Kant argued, are things in themselves and not merely phenomena, if the understanding is itself perceptive, not merely discursive and dependent on a sensuous content supplied from without, then Leibniz is right. It is Kant's conception of the thing in itself, now presented as an unknown cause of sensuous affection, now as an unnavigated ocean bounding the island of experience, and yet again as the regulative idea which imparts unity to experience while standing outside it, that brings contradiction into the Kantian theory of knowledge. This contradiction once overcome, the a priori synthesis, becomes the positive expression of the original fundamental activity of mind. Modern philosophy, we have seen, begins with the attempt to present a comprehensive view of reality, mind, and nature, systematic and coherent, based on a principle which assures its truth and excludes doubt. It means with an obstacle at the outset in the problem of knowledge itself, for knowledge seems to have two sources. One is sense-awareness, the other is intellectual and non-sensuous. These two sources of knowledge give rise to the formulation of antithetical principles, distinguished later as dogmatism and empiricism. Each principle ends in a failure, for the difficulty in each case is to pass from thought to reality, or to find a criterion which will assure the validity of knowledge. The first principle rejects sense awareness. The senses are deceitful. Their purpose or end is utilitarian, not logical. They do not lead us to truth. Only ideas are true, and the degree of their clearness and distinctness is the degree in which doubt and uncertainty are excluded. The principle fails where it is most needed, namely in physical science. The second principle rejects the belief in an inferred real world as the cause of knowledge. It accepts sense perceptions as immediate reality. The objects of knowledge are perceptions, not the causes of perceptions. And this principle fails because self-awareness in its immediacy will not yield the ideas of necessary connection, continuity and permanence, which physical science requires. The two antithetical principles are then brought together in the principle of criticism. Both are recognized as equally necessary conditions in the possibility of experience. Their opposition is recognized in the concept of an a priori synthesis. 
The a priori synthesis means that knowledge is sense, content subsumed under intellectual forms. The critical principle in taking the two factors as diverse in our origin and brought together in the synthesis, the one coming from without as sense content, the other coming from within the mind itself as form of unity, gave rise to the doctrine of the thing in itself. And so the principle failed before the problem of the distinction of phenomena and noumena. But this distinction is already overcome in the concept of the monad and its self-centered activity. The monad is thing in itself and its activity is perception. No reality falls outside it. The factors, therefore, which form the synthesis in which knowledge consists, exists in their unity in the monad. End of chapter 11